Hey, Grace Church, my name is Sean Sears, the lead pastor here. Thank you very much for being a part of our services. I think we're all spending a whole lot more time on screens now. Um, computer screens, TV screens, tablet screens, iPhone. If you're spending more time on screen time, uh, let the rest of us know. Put out like a little heart. I'd, I'd ask you to raise your hand, but I can't see it. Uh, so send out like a little thumbs up or a heart or something like that so that the rest of us cannot feel so badly about ourselves and the amount of time we're spending watching a screen, or at least so I don't feel uh, so bad about myself. Spending a lot more time binge-watching shows also. Anybody here binge-watching? What are you binge-watching? If you've got a show that you can recommend with a clear conscience, a show that we won't have to go back on and delete because it's inappropriate, if you know what I mean, put, it, put that out there so the rest of us can check it out. Uh, I think we are on like our 30th or 40th time through Office as a series. There's nine different seasons, and I don't know how many times we're on now. I, I, I just love that. It, what I love about it, I mean, the first season is just okay, but the other eight are great. I even like the ones after Michael Scott moves to Colorado. Uh, and the series, the, 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 season, the series ended so well. It wrapped up all the different plot lines, all the different characters. Their stories resolved beautifully. It was fantastic. So it's, I think that's one of the reasons why that show appeals to so many people. is not just because of how funny it was during it, but how it wrapped up at the end. I'll tell you a series that didn't wrap up very well is Lost. Can I get an amen? Holy cow, I, <laughs> I hated the ending of that. The series finale, all these movie theaters were having watch parties. And I found this one up in, I think it was Medford maybe, uh, that we went to a dinner theater. So we paid $30 to watch the series finale of Lost. The, the meal was great. The episode was absolutely horrible. We left, and like, we, we went with another couple. All four of us got in the car angry. We hated the way that series ended. I'll tell you another great series that ended poorly is Alias with Jennifer Garner. Uh, she's a spy. My wife and I loved that show. She got pregnant with two more seasons left but wanted to take a break from acting after her baby was born so they decided to wrap up the next two seasons worth of episodes and the last four episodes of the season they were in. That was a horrible decision. The movie Inception, great movie, but I hated the ending. Now, if you liked it, there's just no hope for you. I'm just saying, like, I don't know how anybody could like the ending of that movie. Ryan watched it again last week, so it came up in our conversation. Ryan's my youngest son. So we had a big old conversation of whether or not the movie even really happened or if the whole thing was, was just a, a, a dream. Incredibly frustrating. Great movie, but the ending's got to be good. And not only does the ending have to be good, it's got to give us more information than just the resolution of the climactic moment. And, and that's the way I feel about the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the, the entire Jewish Bible is like this, this pre-narrative pre that's leading up to the crescendo of human history where the Messiah is finally revealed, the rescuer of mankind finally shows up into the human story to rescue mankind from their brokenness, their rebellion against God, and their selfishness towards each other. He dies on the cross, taking God's full judgment on himself so that you and I don't have to take that judgment on ourselves. He's buried. He resurrects from the dead with new life to give us new life. I get all of that. I like it. And now I want to know what's, what happens next. And it just, it just stops. Like, all four of them. Like he resurrects and then it's over. Like that, there's, I want to know what's, what's next. 
It's, it's like when you, when you get done with an episode in a series that you like, and the show's over, and then there's a countdown. It says 18 seconds. It says up next, and it starts getting ready to play the next thing. That's the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is what's up next. What happens right after Jesus resurrects from that? I'm thankful to God for this book because it resolves the story well. It's got a cool to be continued moment at the very end. I don't want to spoil it for you. If you haven't read the book of Acts, I think you're going to like it, especially if you picture it like a movie in your head. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 today. Uh, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Uh, That was last Sunday. Uh, On Sunday morning, he was seen by Mary Magdalene. Sunday afternoon by Cleopas and his friend on their way to Emmaus. Uh, Then he shows up to Peter, and then the other nine, the ten disciples. Uh, Then the eleventh one, which is doubting Thomas, doesn't see Jesus until the next day. And 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 then there's a few more. There's days left, and then Jesus ascends into heaven. It's in that period in between the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus where the book of Acts starts. So if you've got your Bible, go to Acts chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. Now, the book of Luke was written by... Luke, who is a companion of the Apostle Paul, and he wrote Luke as the first volume of a two-volume set. And both of them were written to the same friend of his. He had a friend named Theophilus who had heard about Jesus. And, and Luke says at the very beginning of Luke chapter 1 that he's writing this account of the life of Jesus for his friend Theophilus so he could be confident in all of the different things that he heard about Jesus. So Luke talks about all of his original sources that he, that he interviewed, and, and it was only from original sources that he included uh, information in the details of the life of Jesus. Uh, so that's what the book of Luke is. It's the life of Jesus. And then, and then the book of Acts is his volume two to the same guy, and here's what happened uh, through other people's lives because of the life of Jesus. That's, that's, that's the book of Acts. So Acts chapter one, verse three, says this. During the 40 days... After that, Jesus suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Uh, we'd heard a little bit about this last week. I told you already, he was seen by uh, Mary Magdalene, by all the different disciples, by Cleopas, by his friend. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul gives us a few other names, and then he says, and he was seen by a crowd of over 500 all at one time. And then Paul says that if, if you don't believe me, uh, most of these guys are still alive. Uh, go interview them for yourself so you can determine uh, what's true. Uh, what kills me, though, about this period of time is, is that we don't have in the Bible, anything that he actually preached on. We know that he preached on the kingdom of God, but for whatever reason, God did not lead any of the authors of the Christian New Testament to share with us any of the stuff that he talked about, except for a couple of things, brief conversations at the end, which are included in what we're looking at today. So verse 4, once he, Jesus, uh, when he was eating with them, the disciples, he commanded them, this is one of only two things that we get that Jesus said during those 40 days. He said, uh, don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift that he promised, as I told you about before. Everybody loves a gift, and if I know I'm getting a gift when I go to this place, I don't leave that place until I get my what? Gift. If I'm going to a birthday party and people bring gifts, I don't leave without what? My gift. At my wedding, my wife and I had a whole table set aside for all of our wedding guests to bring and put their what on that table? Gifts. And before we left to go on our honeymoon, I made sure my mother-in-law, not my brother, was in charge of taking care of those what? Those gifts. We want to be careful with this. So Jesus says, don't leave Jerusalem until you get your gift. The gift I told you about before. What gift was that? 
When did you tell them about this before, Jesus? Good question. John answered that question for us when he tells us about that conversation before Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And that's in John chapter 15. And I'm going to read uh, verse, uh, st starting in John 14. I'm going to start reading in verse 15. If you love me, Jesus said to his disciples before he died and rose again, uh, obey my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you a gift. He will give you another advocate. This advocate will never leave you. Uh, he is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because he isn't looking for, it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him uh, because he lives with you now and later will be in you. So I learned four things about this gift from Jesus' earlier conversation. The first thing I learned is this, that once you get God's Holy Spirit, he never leaves you. Once God makes you his Dude, you are permanently His. That is awesome. He'll never take His Holy Spirit away from you. Second thing I learned is, whereas once in, 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 in all of the times before uh, the resurrection of Jesus, anytime you see the Holy Spirit before, uh, He empowers somebody. He visits somebody. He, he comes upon somebody. He, he fills somebody to do a task, and then He leaves. It's always a temporary thing. So, but, but now I learned that he, He's permanently inside uh, the heart of those who are followers of Jesus. The third thing I learned is that he's not inside everyone. There are those who are not looking for God. They don't have God's Holy Spirit in them. But the Bible says if you look for me, you will find me if you search for me with your whole heart. Once you find God, the automatic response is to humble yourself, call on God to forgive you and save you, and to accept the only offering he made on your behalf, which was the sacrifice of of Jesus for, for our sins on the cross. And, 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 and it's in that moment that you receive God's Holy Spirit. And the fourth thing I learned is that he leads people to all truth. Those are the four things I learned about the gift from Jesus' earlier conversation that he referenced before he left them. So now we're going to go back to the conversation before he left them. And we're going to pick it up in verse 5. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus... You'd think that they would ask more questions about this, but they've, they've just got one thing on their mind. Uh, verse 6 says, So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore whose kingdom? Our, our kingdom. God, has the time come for you to get rid of these stinking Romans? They were, it's almost like they didn't listen to a single sermon Jesus preached during Holy Week. On Palm Sunday, all of Jerusalem got together and anointed Jesus as their Messiah, their coming king, because he would throw off the Roman oppressors, set up the throne of his father David, a physical throne in Jerusalem, starting right then to establish an earthly kingdom. And Jesus spent the entire week saying that the kingdom that God is most interested in is not the kingdom of politics, but the kingdom of your heart. God's more interested in the politics, excuse me, is, not, is less interested in the politics of man than he is the heart of man. And the truth is, I want God to fix everything on the outside of me. But if God's most interested in fixing what's broken on the inside of me, I'm not always comfortable with that. I'd rather God fix what's wrong within the heart of you. But if God's going to have to change me, that's not, nothing, that's not something I'm always interested in. So the disciples were still thinking, are you going to fix everything that's out here? Jesus responds to that question by saying uh, in verse 7 that the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. That's, that's not for you to know. So he pivots from that conversation to say, but I'm going to tell you what, what I am interested in, and that's this gift again. 
right? So they were, were, were less interested in that than they were their agenda, than, than God's agenda. So Jesus takes the opportunity to answer the question they had about their agenda to redirect them back towards his agenda in verse 8. And here's what he says. Uh, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And everybody wants power. Uh, and I, I've, seen, I've, I've seen religious people try to leverage and manipulate God for power. And, and honestly, while it's easy to criticize them for doing that, I can be guilty of that in my own life. Um, I'll come to God because I want God to fix something that I feel powerless about. I want God to, to fix my marriage. And nothing wrong for asking. I'm just saying, I have an agenda uh, when I come to God. I want God to get rid of my debt. I mean, if I'm talking about the power of God in my life, how is that going to be seen? Uh, because you'll hear some people say that the evidence of God's power in your life is that you're wealthy, healthy, wealthy, and wise. That God wants you to be rich. That God wants you to be, like, it, what God wants you to be is holy. That's what God wants you to be. What God wants you to be is reconciled to Him. What God wants is your heart free of sin and devoted to Him and His kingdom purposes. That's what God wants. And that's what Jesus says. Uh, that God's Holy Spirit will give you power and you will, when you get this power, you will be a witness. You'll be witnesses, he says, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching and they could no longer see him. And that was the last thing that he ever said to them. He said, wait here for the Holy Spirit. And then in another conversation, he said, when the Holy Spirit shows up, here's what you're going to have the, the ability to do. You're going to have the ability, the natural desire. God's Holy Spirit is going to be working in you to give you the want to, to make sure everyone that you love and care about gets the same opportunity to have the brokenness inside of them forgiven, healed, and put back into place again. That's what you're going to want. You're going to, want to, to, you're, you're going to want to be a part of what I came here for. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save those who are lost. And now he hands on, hands off that responsibility to his disciples. That's, he says, listen, the, the same job that I have been given, I am now given to you. It's the same thing Jesus prayed the night that he was betrayed in the garden a week and a half ago that we're celebrating now and, you know, 50 7, 58, 59 days earlier than what they were talking about, about, about here. Jesus had prayed in the garden when he was talking to the Father. He said, Father, as you have sent me into the world, I am now going to be sending them into the world. It's the number one thing God intends you to care most about because it's the thing in this world that is most desperately in need of being fixed. It's our hearts. It's not poverty. It's not cancer. It's not disease. It's not war. All of those are symptoms of the problem. What's most broken in this world is inside the heart of every person. And every person who's found their way back to God through faith in Jesus has now been given the same responsibility, the same privilege, the same opportunity to make sure that every one of their friends and neighbors get the exact same chance that they've had. But they have to wait till they get God's Holy Spirit to do this. So they wait 10 more days. Jesus, after 40 days, ascended into heaven. And then on the day of Pentecost, which is 50 days after the resurrection. So uh, after Passover, it's 40 days until Jesus goes to heaven. It's 50 days where they celebrate the harvest festival. Now the harvest festival is when they would plant early on in the year the very first crops that would come out. 
they would give 100% of those crops to God. It was the first fruits offering. So those who had traveled to Jerusalem from far away uh, for Passover would often stay those next seven weeks and just go home after this harvest festival. And that's the situation here. We're going to skip up to chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, On the day of Pentecost, that's 50 days later, so we know it's 10 days after Jesus left, because that was on the day, 40th day, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. They heard a sound, uh, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each one of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them the ability. And the, the imagery here is, is important. That the idea that there would be tongues of fire uh, sitting or resting above each one of them uh, was, was very meaningful especially to them as Jewish followers of their Messiah, of Jesus. Because every time the Jewish Bible ever talked about the presence of God, it was pictured or seen as fire. Uh, Abraham, when he finally got to Canaan, and God said, this is the land that I told you I was going to give you, he had a dream. And in this dream, God walks between uh, a set of sacrifices, uh, as, and, and God is seen in his dream as a torch, as, as fire. When Moses had run from Egypt and become a full-time shepherd in the desert, and God appears to Moses and calls him to go back to Egypt to let my people go, God appears to him in a bush as what? As, as fire. When, when Moses then after, and this is, this is what we celebrate this festival for with now, the, the, uh, uh, the giving of the law, which was also 50 days after they had left uh, you know, Egypt, uh, Moses is on Mount Sinai, and God's physical presence came and was, was visibly represented by fire. When God led the Jews for the next 40 years through the desert, He led them by night and a pillar of fire, and then by day as a pillar of, of smoke. Uh, that smoke was obviously from fire. Elijah compared the presence of God to fire. Fire filled the temple when Solomon dedicated it on its grand opening. In several different places in the Jewish Bible, the scriptures talk about the temple being filled with smoke from the presence of God. So before the time of Jesus, if you wanted access to God, you had to go to a place. You had to go to a temple. You had to go to the synagogue. You had to, you had to go to church. You had to go somewhere if you wanted to meet God. Uh, and that was, that was represented by the fire, uh, by the temple being filled with fire. For the first time now, fire is now over each one of their heads, which was a picture or a symbol that now each one of them had direct access to God. We see this also on the day that Jesus resurrected from the dead. When, excuse me, on the day that Jesus died. On, on the day that Jesus was crucified, the Bible says that in his death, the curtain that separated the holiest place where only the high priest was able to go and only once a year was torn in half from the top down and it was open and exposed. The presence of God was now open and exposed so that anybody could go in. And in the same way, God's presence has now been made available to, to every single person. Um, uh, there's another verse that talks about this in 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul's talking about this and, and he's, 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 he's talking about how each one of us now, who've turned from sin and begin following Jesus, have God's presence in us and with us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19, Paul says this, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who now lives in you and was given to you by God? So now, I don't go to a place to find God. If I've turned from sin and begin following Jesus, I have God's presence with me always. And that carries a greater responsibility because now the things that I do outside of church 
outside of the gathering with other followers of God matters just as much as the things I do when I'm at church and when I am gathered with those who are followers of Jesus. So here's what happens next in verse 5 of Acts chapter 2. At that time, there were uh, devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running. Uh, they thought it was like a tornado or something. Uh, they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. And then it gives us some of the, the countries that they're from. Here we are, verse 9, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, uh, the, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the areas of Libya and Cyrene, uh, Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. So they stood there amazed and perplexed. What can all of this mean? So sure enough, when God's gift of the Holy Spirit was given to them, they began telling people all the awesome stuff that God had done in other people's lives and in their lives. Then they were speaking in their languages, but other people were understanding in theirs. So it'd be like me speaking English and you understanding in Creole or you understanding in, in Portuguese or, or Spanish or you know, any other language. Whatever your native language is, you'd be able to understand exactly what I was saying in your language, although I wasn't speaking your language, I'm speaking mine. It's awesome. That's, that's something that only the Holy Spirit was, was able to do. Uh, verse 12, they stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd started mocking them and said, they're just drunk, that's all. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other disciples and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people aren't drunk, as some of you are assuming. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. It's much too early for that. It's not like it's 8 o'clock, right? Or whatever time. <laughs> not that they would have ever been drunk. He's just like, like, even the statement is ridiculous. It's 9 o'clock. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, there's, there's no way. Uh, then, then he starts uh, preaching to them. And I'm not going to read the entire sermon, but this is the very first sermon that's ever preached. And truthfully, while there's a lot of different sermons that we give every single weekend here at Grace Church, uh, you'll hear themes from this sermon pop up in our sermons on a regular basis, even when we're not teaching from this passage of Scripture. And that's only because I feel that it's the very first sermon ever preached. It's got the most important content, and it does. Uh, verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. People of Israel, he said, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you all know. And nobody argued that point because they did all know that what he was saying about Jesus was true. But God knew what would happen and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him back from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in his grips. He goes on to preach a little bit more, and we're going to skip to the end of the sermon because that's when he starts to bring it home, and that's in verse 36. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other disciples, Brothers, what should we do? That's the appropriate response. When you recognize that there is a God and you ain't Him, and that He is holy and you are not, and He is perfect and you're broken, the question should now be, what can I do to resolve this? What can I do to resolve this? And this is what every religion in the world is trying to do. 
All religions are based on the assumption that a good God or their version of God lets good people or their version of good into heaven or their version of heaven, paradise, whatever it is. The only problem with that is the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that there is no one who is actually good. For you and I, good is a relative word. I say that I'm good because I'm comparing myself to people who are what? Bad. I'm not comparing myself to Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or somebody like that because compared to Mother Teresa, could I say that I'm good compared to her? Probably not, right? So I'll compare myself to people that I know that I'm better than. But when God says, I'm looking for someone as good, who is he comparing you to? Jesus. Not to your brother-in-law, not to your neighbor, not to your best friend, or even Mother Teresa. When God says good, he's looking for innocence. So the Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that there is no one who is good, not even one. Because God's goodness is innocent of ever breaking one of God's laws or being selfish towards your fellow man. That's the problem that we have. So none of us are good. And no amount of good things you'll ever do will ever make you innocent. Now I can make myself not more guilty, but once I've broken God's laws, if from this day on until the day I died, I never did another bad thing ever again, could I say to God, I'm innocent of ever being bad? No. If you're bad once, if you're bad once, then I'm no longer innocent. And if God is good... He cannot let guilty people off the hook. But because he's love, he would let somebody who's innocent take the place of someone who's guilty. But who here is innocent? See, I can't take your punishment for your sins so that you can go free because I have my own what? Sins to pay for. The only person who could take the place of you or me as somebody who had never broken God's laws and who had never been selfish towards their fellow man. And who is that? Jesus. But if Jesus is just a man, then that one man's innocent life would cover how many other people's innocent, guilty lives. If he's just a man, then his sacrifice would only cover one other person. But if Jesus is who Isaiah said he was, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father as a baby, if Jesus is God who showed up as a man, then how many of mankind's lives is God's life worth? All of them. That's why this matters. You and I are guilty of breaking God's laws, and someday we will stand before God and He will say, are you innocent or guilty? And we will say, honestly, I am guilty. The question is, has our debt been paid for already or not? And that's what Peter gets to next. Men and brother, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, here's what you need to do. Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, like me, like you, all who have been called by the Lord our God. See, what religion will tell us is that, even some Christian religions, is that Jesus is the doorway to God. And that the sacraments or our good deeds unlock the locks in that door. So, First Communion, uh, Baptism, Confirmation, Catechism, uh, Married, uh, Confession, uh, Tithing, uh, Giving, Good Deeds to the Poor, Going on a Mission Trip. 
Here's the thing. They never tell you how many locks there are in that door. The idea is that you just do enough unlocking that when you die, hopefully they'll, God will open the door for you. But what the Bible actually teaches is that, yes, Jesus is the door to God, but his death, burial, and his resurrection opens it for you. All you have to do is walk in. That's why Peter said, just turn from your brokenness and turn to God. Once you've repented of your sin, become a follower of Jesus, then be baptized. You'll be forgiven, and you'll be given God's Holy Spirit. There's a verse in Galatians chapter 2 that says this, We know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the rules. I'm going to read that again. This is in the Bible, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. For no one will ever be made right with God by keeping the rules. It keeps me from adding to my debt, but it doesn't take away my debt. That's my problem. It makes me not more guilty, but it can't make... Obeying the rules can't make me innocent of all the times I've already broken them. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all of his listeners, save yourself from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were then baptized. Those who believed first were made right with God and then they're baptized. Baptism is when we, as Romans chapter 6 says, we, in baptism we are buried with Jesus in his death so that sin no longer reigns and has authority in our life. So it's in salvation. It's the day that I repent from my sins, accept that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the only thing that pays off my debt, right? I go all in. God, forgive me and save me, right? Like in that moment, I'm made right with God. Now I can be baptized. And it's in baptism that I make the conscious choice to bury the person that I was before Jesus. Now some of us have already been baptized. We were baptized as little kids. And that was an expression of whose faith? Yours or your parents? Your parents. And your parents' intention to bring you up in faith is good. I believe all parents should do everything they can to bring up their kids to have as many chances as possible to turn from their sin and begin following Jesus also. But how long are you going to continue living on their faith? Like, how long do we think borrowed faith is going to work for us? At some point, don't you think you ought to own your faith for yourself? Every single person who was ever baptized in the entire Bible was baptized after they made a personal choice to turn from their sin and begin following Jesus. Every single one of them. This is your, your next step might be just to turn from sin, call on Jesus to forgive you and save you, to go all in as a follower of Jesus. If you've done that, I know for a fact what your second step is, and that's to be baptized. We baptize underwater because it's the best picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And because every person that was ever baptized in the whole Bible went down into the water. Every single time. Two things are always true about baptism. It always followed their profession of faith, and it was always down into the water. I know for, that's what the scripture says, so I know for a fact those are my next steps. Those are your next steps. They were added to the church that day, about 3,000 all. So my, my sermon today should be as close to Peter's as possible. So let me say it to you in my words. This Jesus that you thought was a good man, a holy person, is way more than that. This Jesus is God who showed up in history, who volunteered to be the substitute for you. 
He took all of God's anger and judgment for your sins on himself so that you would not experience God's anger or God's judgment. He was buried and rose from the dead with new life so that you could be made new also. And your response should be the same as theirs. You need to believe that his death, his burial, and his resurrection is the only thing that pays off your debt before a holy and righteous God. You need to turn away from your sins and go all in as a follower of Jesus. And then you need to be baptized. That is, that is what your next step is. What if you've already gone to that place? Now what? If you've already been saved, if you've already been rescued by God, if you already have God's Holy Spirit in you, my question is, what are you looking for from God? He gave you His Spirit not to make you happy, but to make you holy. Not to make you rich, but to make you generous. Not to make your life more comfortable, but to make your life more meaningful. So my question is, what are you doing with the Holy Spirit life that God has given you? What are you chasing after? What do you spend the most time learning about? Wanting, craving, praying for? How are you right now leveraging your life to be a witness to the goodness and greatness of Jesus? And if you aren't, then what needs to change right now in your life to get back on track? That's what you should pray about. I'm going to ask everybody, if you would, to bow your head with me. God, thank you for loving us in spite of our sin. God, thank you for dying on the cross because of our sin. And thank you, Jesus, for forgiving us from all of it. If you're disconnected from God right now, then maybe your prayer is, God, I believe. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross as a payment for my sin. Thank you for raising from the dead with new life. I want that. Clean my heart. Make it new. Give me a clean slate. God, forgive me of my sin. Help me to follow you, Jesus, with the rest of my life. I am all in. Make that your prayer. If you've already come to that place, you're a follower of Jesus, but if you're going to be completely honest, you're really more interested in building your kingdom than his, then this is an opportunity for you to reset, right? For you to recalibrate, for you to get back to true north. Your prayer is, God, I am your man. I am your girl. Do with me whatever you want. God, help me to be more interested in your agenda for my life than mine. You just put it in my heart to do, God, I, <laughs> in the words of Doc Holliday from Tombstone, I am your huckleberry. Dear God in heaven, put me back on track. Get me back in the game. I'm ready. Make that your prayer. God, I pray that you're pleased by the attitude of our heart and by the prayer that we made. For those who are not ready yet to become your followers, Jesus, give them another chance. I ask this in your name, and we all say together, amen.